What a beautiful song. And God knows we need comfort in these days. My name is Alex. I'm the lead pastor here at Courtright, and I want to add my word of greeting to what Allison said at the beginning. Uh, we're glad you're here with us, whether you're in the room or you're joining us online. This morning, we return to Isaiah for one final Sunday as we prepare for Christmas. And we're going to pick up the story in Isaiah 40. Previously, the prophet had a message of judgment for God's people. You might recall two weeks ago that map of how the Assyrian Empire surrounded little Israel. And last week, we came upon a stump. We saw how the family of King David had become like a tree that was chopped down. Well, Assyria was the axe that brought Israel down, down and into exile in Babylon. And now we jump ahead. Starting in chapter 40, we get a new prophetic vision of what will come after exile when Israel returns home. And it's a vision of hope that points us to Jesus Christ. So let's pray before we open our Bibles. Holy Spirit, we ask you to renew us today. Renew in us your hope. Lord, as we're about to read, so many things wither away, but your word stands forever. Your truth is eternal. Would you invite us, welcome us into your three-in-one community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit this morning as we ponder your word. Amen. So we're going to read Isaiah 40, verses 1 to 11, and then we'll skip ahead to verses 27 to 31. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I say, what shall I cry? All people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Don't be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. And from verse 27, Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, 
My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you, have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary, and they will walk and not be faint. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I look back on the year 2020, I have lots of thoughts, lots of emotions. But I have to say that one of the most significant things about this past year has been the time I've spent with my parents in Brighton, where they live. The hard reality is that they won't be able to stay there too much longer, and I think this year has brought that home for us. But during this time of pandemic especially, it has been a gift for them to be there, and for me as well. Because in a way, their home is my home too. Where can we really be at home? We all long for that experience of safety and of belonging and of comfort. Now, Guelph has become my home, my family's home over the past 10 years. But before that, I lived for 40 years in Toronto. And so that's a part of me too. At maybe a deeper level, if you're like me, you're always wondering where you truly belong. You're always feeling slightly out of place. There's no question that I'm going to mourn the loss of my parents' home when that day comes. And I see it as another sign of these restless lives we're leading. Where do you feel at home? How would you answer that question? Maybe you've been home a lot more this year than you ever expected. Has that led to greater peace in your life, more of a feeling of being settled in your home? If you feel restless, as many of us do, if you long for a home where you can truly rest from your worries and your concerns, then this passage is for you. Isaiah 40 portrays the homecoming of Israel from exile. Her hard service has been completed, it says. And in this passage, we hear about three things. First of all, we hear about the advent of the king. His arrival is imminent. The true king is coming. Secondly, we learn about the hope within his kingdom. And third, we receive his invitation to respond as his people. So first of all, the advent of the true king. This passage Perhaps its most famous lines are near the beginning where it says, there is a voice of one calling. And the voice calls out, prepare the way of the Lord. The voice says, make way. When someone important is about to arrive in town, the police stop traffic, they set up barriers, and you know it's someone important who's coming. Or in Jurassic Park, There's that famous scene where the cup of water on the dashboard starts to tremble. 
and you know, at least you do if you've watched Jurassic Park as many times as I have, you know that the T-Rex is coming. Isaiah announces the arrival of something greater than the world has ever seen before because it doesn't just stop traffic. No, so much more. It's raising up valleys and it's bringing down mountains. At that time, in the time when Isaiah lived, anyone reading this would have realized that that meant a king was coming because when a king or an emperor went to a certain part of his realm for the first time, he didn't take the route that most people took, the usual roads. No, they actually built entirely new highways for him to travel on. And sure, that helped him get there faster, but it also points at a deeper level to the meaning of kingship. First of all, it was about the king's authority, this idea of knocking down every barrier, just as workers would remove all resistance to the king's smooth journey, we, as the subjects of the king, are called to align with his authority and not resist his lordship in any way. And then secondly, this leveling of the geography symbolizes the healing influence of the true king. Think with me for a second about the influence of good leadership. Maybe you've had the experience of being part of a team with a really good coach. And I'm willing to bet that you enjoyed unity among your teammates in that case. And you excelled, you worked together, you came together. Whereas under a bad coach, the team falls apart. Under a good leader, the community flourishes. Under a bad leader, it withers. Or you can think of a small group Bible study. A lot of you are in small groups. If you're not, you will have an opportunity to join one in the new year. When you meet with your group, there's a leader. I hope there is anyway. And what that means, just the fact that there's a leader in and of itself, means that you've given that person authority. And if the leader has the assurance, has the character, has the aptitude to lead the group well, and even sacrificially, it paves the way, it greatly increases the likelihood that it will be a deeply satisfying experience that draws people together, that nurtures them. Whether you're a parent, whether you're a city councillor, whatever form of leadership you're practicing in your job, in your volunteer commitments, in relationships, when authority, the authority that you have, is exercised rightly, it creates harmony. And here in Isaiah 40, it's portrayed like a king coming to a hostile wilderness, and suddenly the landscape is transformed. All of a sudden, it's welcoming. The king comes to an uninhabitable desert, and, out, and now it's habitable. But Isaiah goes even farther. When human kings come, well, you build a bridge across the gap so they can get to where they're going. But when this king comes, the gap itself disappears. The canyon is filled in. What kind of king can do that? Isaiah is saying that the whole world is a wilderness. There's death, disease, there's war, there's poverty, there's strife and brokenness of all kinds. How did this come to pass? 
Well, it's because the world is managed so poorly. Not by other people, though we're often seeking others to blame, but by us. We got to this point because we live under the rule of incompetent leaders. Who are they? They are us. But when the cosmic and ultimate king arrives, there will be real healing. In verse 5, it says that when this king comes, the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all people will see it together. Which means that this isn't a king from one part of the world. This is the king of the whole world. And if the whole world will see this, and where is this king coming from? He must be coming from outside the world. And so Isaiah is saying that if a true king who has absolute authority will come, and if that king is going to bring complete healing, establish his reign and his peace, Isaiah assures us that the true king, a king like that, is coming, is on his way. So that's the first thing, the advent of the true king. Secondly, we learn about the hope of his kingdom. I've said before that there isn't a ton of hope in Isaiah. If you go back and read the first 39 chapters of this book, there's almost nothing in there but judgment. And it's important that Isaiah establish that standard. His standard of justice, which is God's standard, runs across party lines too. At times, he sounds like he's with the NDP. He condemns Israel for its oppression of the poor, for its greed, for its racism. And then he turns around and starts talking like a total conservative. He judges people for sexual immorality, for not honoring marriage and the family. And so no one party, no one position can measure up to the standard of the true king. Sometimes I think we feel a little self-righteous as we pick a party for ourselves, but no one can stand before this king's high standard. And by the end of chapter 39, there's nothing but condemnation left. God tells Isaiah to go to the king of Judah and tell him that he's going to be taken away into captivity, that he and his people are going into exile in Babylon. And then suddenly, almost out of nowhere, there's this incredible hope that dawns in chapter 40. First of all, it talks about comfort for my people. No matter what happens to you, no matter how you may fail, no matter where you're coming from, what you've done, God still considers you to be my people. Second, it says, proclaim that her hard service has been completed because it's talking about the return from exile in Babylon. So God isn't abandoning his people. He's sending them away. And there's hope here because her sin has been paid. In verse 2, it says that Israel has received from the Lord double for all her sins. And maybe when you first read that, it sounded like it was talking about punishment, but in fact, it's talking about double payment. The reason the exile will only be temporary is because God himself has provided the payment for our sins, and it's double. It's way more than he needed to pay. This is the hope of the new kingdom. And when the king shows up, it's unexpected. It's amazing. 
In verse 10, we see he's a sovereign Lord. He's a warrior. He comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. And in Hebrew, references to an arm being extended, a mighty arm refers to the power of an individual. But, but what is this king doing with his power? In verse 11, he tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. This is the king we know in our hearts to be the true king, right? In the imperial way of the world, power insists on getting its own way. It seizes control. But we know that's wrong. We know it deep within us. Nothing provokes outrage in us like a bully harming a weak person. These COVID vaccines that are coming, we take for granted that the elderly and the vulnerable will get them first. But that is the legacy of Judaism and Christianity. That comes from knowing the true, moral, unchanging law of God. In the ancient world and in paganism, the rich and powerful were always at the head of the line, elbowing the weak out of the way because their gods did the same thing. And I think we see that in our world as well, under the veneer of what remains of this Christian legacy. All of us have a deep sense of what is right, I believe. And that's because we are made in the image of God. And we know that there's a true king who cares for the weak. And we see here that the warrior king is a shepherd. And then in verse 10, it says something interesting. It says, his reward is with him. Now, what in the world could be God's reward? What do you get the man who has everything? If you read this whole chapter, it says God owns the stars. He owns all the nations. They're like dust before him. So what treasure would someone like that bring? Well, it's his flock. It shows up in the next verse. It's these little ones. It's the weak ones. It's us. This is not the survival of the fittest. This is astounding. But how could this king, who is absolutely just, who judges all injustice and evil, how can he look at us with all our flaws, with our self-centeredness? How can he love us in spite of all of that? How can the warrior be a shepherd and call us his reward? How can he say that the stars are nothing compared to you? The oceans are nothing. The galaxies are nothing compared to how I see you. How can that be? Well, only thanks to this double payment. Where do you see the power and the gentleness of God come together? You see it at Christmas when love came down. And you see it when the child who was the Son of God, fulfills his purpose. You see it on a terrible night when Jesus said to one of his followers named Peter, put that sword away. That is not my kind of power. Put it away now. 
Don't you know I could call my father and he would send armies of angels? But I have the strength to be weak and I am laying down my life for my sheep. Only Jesus can answer this question. How in the world could God have given double? When he says, I have given you double payment, what he means is, I haven't just given you the basics. I haven't just gotten you off. I haven't just given you enough salvation so your sins are pardoned. No, I've given you double. There's so much love that it doesn't just wipe out your sins, but it goes farther. It goes so much farther. It welcomes you home. It welcomes you into his arms. He doesn't just see you as forgiven. He sees you as his treasure. His reward. That is the hope of his kingdom. And it's only in Jesus Christ. Now, some Christians don't understand the doubleness of the salvation of Jesus. They believe that Jesus died for our sins, meaning that we're forgiven, but just barely, and now it's up to us to live a good life. It would be like if you were on death row waiting for the day of your execution, and then you received a pardon all of a sudden. And after the initial excitement of getting out wore off, you realize there's this huge cloud hanging over your life. Everybody knows what you did. And so people aren't going to run up to you and say, great, would you like to work for my company? Great, would you like to marry my daughter? You've been pardoned, but you haven't been accepted. But in the story of the prodigal son, the father doesn't just allow his son to return home and work for him. No, he runs out to greet him. He throws a party to honor him. He invites everyone in. The son who's come home is the joy of his heart. And that's how God sees you as his son, as his daughter. He sees you as a jewel. He sees you as his reward. He rejoices in you. That is the hope of the kingdom, the hope that can give us the freedom, the true freedom that we need. The warrior is a shepherd. He's the all-powerful king who is justice for the weak. And the third point that this passage makes is the invitation that's extended to us to respond to the king, to enter his kingdom. Look at how the chapter ends. In verse 31, it says, and these are famous verses. Some of you have heard them many times before. It says, those who wait on the Lord will renew his strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, they will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. But that's weird, isn't it? Shouldn't it start with walking and then running and then you would off? But it's the other way around. They will, they will soar first, then they will run, and then they will walk. Why is it in that kind of backward order? I think because the point is walking. The point is to wait on the Lord to not get ahead of him, to abide with him, to stay with him. Our world is focused on soaring. And sometimes you will soar in your faith, but a lot of the time you won't. And yet God promises you a closer walk with him through it all, through all your suffering, through all the valleys, through all the shadows, one day at a time.
To wait on God means to submit to him. It means learning to pray sincerely, your will, not my will be done. It means resting in him, trusting him with our future, because our fears are always a resistance to the kingship of Christ. Worry, anxiety, and fear, we all feel these things, but they mean ultimately that if I was in charge of my life, I would do a better job. To wait on the true king also means to anticipate. If the lordship of God is a healing influence, then I am not treating God as king unless I have high expectations for what he can do through me. Are you inclined to pessimism? I'm a McLeod from the, Mac the clan McLeod. The weather in Scotland can only inspire pessimism. Some of you can relate to that personality type. I'm tempted in that direction for sure. Do you look at the problems in your life and at the problems in our world and say, well, that's the way it has to be? Do you call that realism? Well, do you realize as you're doing that, you're not treating him as king? Only if you submit to his rule, only if you rest in his lordship, only if you're filled with anticipation at what God is going to do in your life, the ways that he will surprise you and delight you and change you, only then will you have the peace that comes from his kingship. So wait on the Lord. Wait in the hope that he gives you. Over the holidays, we love our comforts, don't we? We love to curl up on the couch with hot chocolate, by a roaring fire, if you've got one. But Christmas is also an invitation to stand outside for a while, to join the prodigal son, to linger in that place of tension and confusion and regret about where our home is. At Christmas time, we're invited to put ourselves in the place of the one who is homeless, because that is where you will always find Jesus. That's how his story starts. That's how it ends. And only the Holy Spirit can prompt you to think less of your own comfort and more of the comfort of another. But here's the good news. We serve an all-powerful king who is also a shepherd. The king who came down in weakness, who left his rightful place of glory, who embraced exile, who paid double for our sins. All of that so that we could come home to God and have the hope of eternal life. And so how can we respond other than to say thanks be to God for the gift of his son? Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen.